Hey everybody, this is Manny Faces, producer and host of Newsbeat, where we shine a light on social justice issues that often don't get enough attention. Now our full episodes mash up a unique mix of interviews with experts, activists, and those affected by social injustices with compelling soundtracks and original lyrical contributions from some of today's brightest indie rap artists. We also throw in special bonus episodes like this one, where we address critical topics that need some love while also working on our full episodes in the background. In this timely bonus episode, our editors Rashed Mian and Christopher Torowski are joined by a handful of incredible guests tackling two major matters, bail reform and the so-called Afghanistan Papers. Shocking revelations exposed by the Washington Post that the U.S. government has been lying to the American public and the tens of thousands of servicemen and women risking their lives and dying about its ongoing war there. Now, as it happens, we've done full deep dive episodes that touched on these topics in the past. So be sure to check them and all Newsbeat episodes, past, present, and future, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please do remember to rate and review us, and feel free to visit us at usnewsbeat.com or follow us at usnewsbeat on the socials for more information about our award-winning work. As always, our deepest thanks for tuning in. Now, let's get into it. Rashed? Thanks, Manny. And as you all know, one of those previous episodes was a deep dive on Money Bail that covered its history, hefty toll on the millions caught in its grasp, and the desperate need for reform initiatives. Titled Freedom for Sale, How Money Bail Crushes America's Poor and Inflates the World's Largest Prison State. To put the issue in context, of the 612,000 Americans currently inside local and state jails throughout the country, more than 75% have not even been convicted for the crimes in which they're charged. And most are there simply because they cannot afford bail. Money bail essentially creates this two-sided, perverted system of justice, right? Wherein those with the funds get out, while those without get stuck behind bars. And of course, this often leads to a loss of unemployment to those locked up, the copping to a plea simply to get out, regardless of whether they were guilty or not of the initial charge, and the untold anguish of not just the inmate, but their families. Pouring salt on this already ghastly wound is the fact that throughout the decades, independent studies have shown more than 90% of defendants released back into society are likely to return to court for subsequent hearings, and those that go to trial are more likely to prove their innocence. Which leads us to reforms. In April, the New York State Legislature passed long-awaited criminal justice reform measures as part of its overall budget. Among the changes, bail reform statewide that eliminates the use of bail in most misdemeanor and nonviolent felony cases. Beginning in January, the far majority of people who enter the criminal justice system in New York will be released on their own recognizance and may participate in pretrial supervision programs funded by each individual county. In serious cases in which bail is permitted, judges must consider defendants' ability to pay as well as any potential hardships it may impose. The Vera Institute of Justice, which advocates for an end of mass incarceration, said that, quote, if implemented effectively, a conservative estimate of the legislation's impact suggests that New York can expect at least a 40% reduction overall in the state's pretrial jail population. This may also lead to more court cases, given the fact that less people may take a guilty plea. And that brings us to another significant reform, the end of New York's so-called blindfold law, which made it difficult for defendants to prepare fully for trial. Under the law, prosecutors will have 15 days to turn over key evidence. 
The discovery law may also lead to fewer guilty pleas because defendants will have more time to analyze the evidence and assess how strong the case is against them. Currently in New York, 90% of cases end in a guilty plea. As you'll hear, members of law enforcement are speaking out against bail reform, arguing that it will make communities more dangerous. Yet an analysis of bail in New York City dating back to 1987 shows that it has already been reduced significantly throughout all five boroughs. Money bail peaked in New York City at 83,705 in 1987, and in 2018, that number fell to 30,000. So there's definitely a lot to unpack. Joining us to discuss bail reform in New York State is Alice Fontier, Managing Director of the Criminal Defense Practice at the Bronx Defenders, which defends thousands of low-income Bronx residents each year. Alice, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So before we get uh, to these new laws, can you explain to listeners who haven't been through the system what it's like for someone to be imposed a bail amount that they can't afford and how that impacts their lives? The simplest way of explaining it is to stop calling it um, bail and call it jail, um, because that's what it is. If somebody as a bail is set and they can't afford it, the person is held in jail until their case is over. And that could be anywhere from days to years. And so the impact of being in jail is something that I think most people would understand. You have no access to work, your finances, money, anything that you were doing in your life is completely stopped. Now, the reform measures adopted by the state legislature are quite expansive. Uh, could Could you break down what this new law does and perhaps what you most like about it? The reforms are expansive um, in written form, but the question of how much of a difference they're going to make um, in our everyday lives really depends on where you are in New York. In New York City, in only about 25% of cases was money bail being set anyway. So it's not that the majority of people were in and will now be out. In addition, in recent years, there have been the, um, I guess, the introduction, I should say, of charitable bail funds. So on low-level cases, misdemeanors, where bail was set at $2,000 or less, charitable bail funds were paying people's bail. So they were not in jail anyway. You know, that doesn't exist outside of the city and in upstate. So in some places, people were being held in on as little as $500 that their families could not afford to pay on misdemeanors, things like driving without a license. That's something that you could be held in jail on if you were in front of the wrong judge in the wrong place. And if your family couldn't afford it, you sat in jail trying to resolve your case. Um, So what the bail reforms do is take away that option from judges on very low-level offenses, misdemeanors, almost all misdemeanors, and then on nonviolent, most nonviolent felonies as well. Um, So there's a lot less discretion on the judge's part to be able to set money bail. I just want to piggyback off of that because the rate of money bail has largely, as you said, declined across New York City since its peak in the late 1980s. So in a way, bail reform has been happening, I guess, organically. So what are the different factors other than the, uh, the bail funds, which is significant, that led to this point? So it's been a long time coming, as you say. You know, we have really, I think, changed for the better as a society where we're not saying, you know, on the basis of an accusation alone, you should be locked away um, until further notice. But also that only ever applied to people who are poor. 
um, which again, just enhances the cycle of poverty that makes everything worse. But, you know, as a society, we've been coming to the uh, realization that mass incarceration isn't working, that we aren't safer and the communities are destroyed. And so the reforms that are happening are not, you know, a lightning bolt revolution, but are the product of a lot of societal change. And as you said, in New York City and other places, there was a realization that money bail was unfair and that only poor people were suffering the fate of these laws. And so through organic forces, society plus district attorneys plus judges, there was it was being used less and less. Thanks, Alice. If we could now talk a little bit about this backlash uh, these reforms have received over the last several weeks. I guess law enforcement groups and unions are sounding the alarm. The president of the Sergeants Benevolent Association said bail reform would put citizens and police horses in harm's way, comparing it to the movie The Purge. What do you make of this reaction? It's last minute fear mongering and nothing more. The The fact of the matter is, is that, you know, these a more liberal, more progressive bail bill passed the legislature, passed the assembly the year before. These bills have been through many committees. The prosecutors and sheriffs um, raised their fears in, in Albany. The legislatures heard them and they put in safeguards. You know, violent felonies, you can still set money bail. Remand is an option for you know the most serious cases. Um, and then there are other uh, safeguards like protective orders, you know, protective orders for people in saying, you know, you may have no contact with that person, but also protective orders with the discovery that is also going to be produced. And then they're expanding supervised release and other supportive programs to make sure that people actually are getting what they need in order to be able to come back to court and not to commit new offenses. So. You know, it is just fear mongering and nothing more because there is a realization that, you know, we are taking a significant step towards ending mass incarceration in New York. So you referred to that sort of late stage fear mongering. We also have um, Republican lawmakers who have introduced measures to try to scale back uh, the law, including one that would allow judges to decide if a defendant should be held based on their perceived threat to public safety. And New York, as you know, for all its criminal justice ills over the last several decades, has prohibited judges from holding people based on the so-called public safety provision. So why is that important? It's very important because, you know, if you don't really dig into it, that makes inherent sense that a judge would be able to say, I think this person is a danger and therefore I'm going to hold them in jail. However, how does a judge make that decision? What do they use to predict somebody's future behavior? The rate of recommission of violent offenses is incredibly low. It's less than 2% of people who commit a violent offense and then commit another violent act. So it is just based on other factors that a judge would decide, I think you're dangerous if you're not charged with a violent offense. If you're charged with misdemeanors or you know, some, you know, nonviolent felony, and a judge looks at you and says, I think you're dangerous, then they can set bail. That simply doesn't make sense. Judges don't have the 
you know, future predictive power to decide that somebody is, in fact, likely to commit another offense. And one of the other uh, important factors in this is that um, counties are going to have to finance some of these uh, measures on their own. So, uh, I mean, what do you see coming out of that? Do you see any problems with counties proclaiming that they don't have the funds for this? New York is interesting because the funding for much of this is county by county and things have been operating that way for a long time. There's no statewide set system. Take New York City, for example. The city um, comptroller just issued a report that found that it costs $925 per day per person to keep somebody in jail in New York City. That's a total of over $337,000 per year per person. If that money is reallocated, it's going to be an enormous savings. Closing jail facilities, reallocating the money will actually result in savings as opposed to um, costing counties money. All right, Al. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all unfolds. I wish you guys luck at the Bronx Defenders continuing what you guys do to, to help low-income residents. And we appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, we're very, very excited and think this is a absolute turn for the best and for, you know, people that do face um, the criminal legal system. Great. Thank you again. Thanks, Alex. To go home, Khalif's mother, Benita Browder, needed to post bail of $3,000, money she said she just didn't have. Court records show Khalif had attempted suicide at least six times, spent 1,110 days behind bars, more than 800 of those in solitary confinement. His court date postponed more than 30 times. He endured all this having never been given a trial, never convicted of a crime. A man jailed for three years in Rikers Island prison with no charges brought against him has committed suicide. 22-year-old Khalif Browder was detained in the infamous prison in New York City where he endured, he endured beatings, beatings, mental abuse, mental abuse and long stretches, long stretches of solitary confinement. Not a public threat, not a risk of flight. Just want to prove my innocence, go home and reunite. Wrong place, wrong time. Confinement out of consequence. Coulda, shoulda let me go on my own recognizance. I couldn't in good conscience let my papa pay a bondsman. Now the list of problems is growing. I can't dodge them. Waiting for a trial date. Miss my sister mother. No way I would be caught out running from a bounty hunter. They all know the truth. Wrote it, sent it to the mailbox. Now I'm finding out that hell's hot from the inside of this cell block. Swear to God, another week locked up feels like it's killing me. Court appointed lawyer in here saying take the guilty plea. Kidding me? Know all about this prison complex industry Just never thought I'd be inside fighting to keep my sanity Then the panic sets in, I can barely gasp for air If you're anything like me, you didn't have a grand space Good afternoon On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes Against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps And military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. And as Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. After 18 months, our troops will begin to come home. So as we all know, the Afghan war has been raging for more than 18 years following the attacks on September 11, 2001. In the following days, the U.S. Congress passed a measure known as the Authorization for Use of Military Force, 
also known as AUMF, a joint resolution which granted then-President George W. Bush the initial power to mobilize U.S. armed forces against those responsible for the deadliest attack on U.S. soil, meaning Al-Qaeda. One hallmark of the AUMF is the seemingly limitless interpretations of the resolution from multiple presidential administrations. It has been used to justify everything from borderless wars, drone strikes, indefinite detention of alleged militants, the extrajudicial killings of U.S. citizens, domestic wiretapping, and bombings of various groups and organizations that didn't even exist on 9-11. That context is important because 18 years later, American troops are still in Afghanistan, the longest conflict in the country's history. On December 9th, the Washington Post published the secret history of the war that it dubbed the Afghanistan Papers. In a nutshell, Post reporter Craig Whitlock acquired more than 2,000 pages of unpublished notes and transcripts from 428 interviews of government officials and members of the U.S. military. The report concluded that the U.S. public has been misled throughout the war. In other words, lied to. Are we winning this war? We have had a great deal of success in achieving the mission that uh, our forces have been given. Is that the functional equivalent of winning? We're making progress. They'll try to come back though, and that's why we say that these gains, while significant, are fragile. The documents and interviews were obtained from a federal agency called the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, known as SIGAR. Created by Congress in 2008 to investigate waste and fraud in the war zone, SIGAR has published seven lessons learned reports since 2016, and the very person in charge of the agency admits to the Post that, quote, the American people have constantly been lied to, close quote. The paper had to sue the government multiple times to obtain these reports, which officials argued, as they typically do, was meant to remain private. According to more than 2,000 pages of documents obtained by the Washington Post, Military commanders, diplomats, and aid workers privately, and in blunt terms, describe an unclear mission, a failed strategy, and efforts to sway public opinion, and decades of upbeat presidential pronouncements about the war. We will defeat the enemy and win the war on terror. Afghans will take full responsibility for their security, and our combat mission will be over. Together we're making tremendous progress. We're well aware that stats alone don't do the war, nor the human suffering caused by it, justice. Yet the numbers are tragic all the same. More than 2,400 Americans' lives lost, tens of thousands wounded. Since the U.S. invasion, more than 38,000 civilians have been killed. And the war continues unabated, with U.S.-led airstrikes happening at a rapid clip to this day. The release of the Afghanistan papers comes as the Trump administration and Taliban engage in negotiations to bring this conflict to an end. Such efforts have stalled previously, and it's unclear if withdrawal of the 14,000 U.S. troops still in Afghanistan is on the horizon. The Afghanistan Papers is one of the most damning reports to be published since the war started. On the scale of what Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers revealed about the U.S. war in Vietnam nearly 50 years ago, yet it's largely been overshadowed by recent impeachment hearings. Due to the sheer gravity of its publication and the lethal lies it exposes, and the fact the United States is engaged in a seemingly endless war, we thought it vital we continue this discussion. 
Joining us to discuss the Afghan papers and what this all means is Stephen Miles, Executive Director of Win Without War, which advocates for a more peaceful, progressive foreign policy. Stephen, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. So Stephen, I want to put this into perspective. The Afghan war is the longest such conflict in American history, yet government officials have rarely, if ever, said it was failing. So how does this reporting jive with public comments made by U.S. generals and senior government officials about the war? First of all, I'm glad you're doing the show. I think not enough attention has been paid to this issue. Uh, and I think the the shocking and damning thing of the reporting is, is what you just alluded to. The private conversations, the private thoughts of these government officials were completely at odds with what they said publicly. While in public, they were saying, we're making progress, we're turning over a new leaf, we're on, our, on the verge of victory. Uh, behind closed doors, uh, they were admitting they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know who the enemy was. The war wasn't working, uh, and there was no sign that there was anything that was going to change. Thanks, Stephen. Now, I'm going to read one of the more revelatory and damning sections from the Washington Post report. It states, quote, several of those interviewed described explicit and sustained efforts by the U.S. government to deliberately mislead the public. They said it was common at military headquarters in Kabul and at the White House to distort statistics to make it appear the United States was winning the war when that was not the case, end quote. What's your reaction, and should anyone be held responsible for intentionally misleading the public and perhaps even members of Congress? Well, first, it's it's hard to hear those words. Uh, I think we need to recognize that there are men and women in uniform who are not with us today because those words were said not in public but in private. Uh, I think it's it's hard because we know that there are countless Afghan lives that have been lost and forever changed because of the lies that were said. And I think we need to be honest that these were lies. They were public lies to distort the truth and to prevent a change of policy. Absolutely, people need to be held to account for that. I, I think you know one thing one thing that's often lost here uh, through this time is that, it wasn't as if no one was saying these things. There were advocates like us. There was others on the outside. There was brave uh, folks who who resigned in protest. I, I think of Matthew Ho, uh, who resigned from the State Department over Afghanistan. Uh, I think of Danny Davis, who who was in active duty and came back from Afghanistan and said, we are not being honest with the American public. And every time the policy tried to change, these lies would would come out stronger. They would take new force. Congress would be on the verge of doing something to end this war, to bring our troops home, to force a settlement for peace. And instead, they would get talked down by the administration and by military leaders who knew what they were saying was untrue, but nonetheless said, no, no, don't pull the rug out from under us. We're so close. We're turning the page. There's going to be victory. They were lying. And the result is years and years of war that didn't have to happen years and years of war that cost lives, that cost this country hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions over the, over the course of the war. People need to be held to account for that. And I think one of the things that we see is when they're not held to account, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about the disillusionment with Washington, the kind of the, the reality of how that fueled the rise of Trump and these sorts of things. Well, when folks see no accountability for the lies, not only with this floor, but the lies that got us into Iraq and other conflicts over the last two decades, you can understand why people feel disillusioned. Yeah. And uh, one of the other stunning acknowledgments from my perspective was uh, from Ryan Crocker, who was the veteran diplomat who served as U.S. ambassador uh, a half dozen times, including in Afghanistan during the period of 2011 to 2012. During one of his interviews for this project that the Post is reporting on, 
He said that the single most successful project, ironically, and I guess inadvertently, was the development of mass corruption inside Afghanistan, which sort of, I guess, undercut efforts at building a trustworthy system of government. Uh, so if senior officials were aware a decade into the war that it was largely failing, both on the ground and its ill-fated attempt at nation building, why do you think there was no significant shift in strategy? It's a great question. I mean, I think we need to be honest that uh, the Congress bears a, a significant responsibility here. Some of these members of Congress have been around a long time, frankly, and, and they should know better than to believe what they hear from uh, military officials and, and others who have been shown to lie uh, repeatedly in some of these instances. You know, uh, the name the Washington Post used, the, the Afghan Papers, harkens back to the Pentagon Papers for a reason. This is a complete historical echo to what happened in, in, in that time period during the Vietnam War. Not very many members of Congress are left who were there from part of that. But certainly a lot of members of Congress are here who understood that they were lied to throughout the Iraq war, that the the kind of, you know, we've got the insurgency on the run, the, the last throes of, of Dick Cheney and others, these lies persist and they're, and they're constant. And Congress bears responsibility, not because they don't know that it's happening, but frankly, because they lack the political will. They have complete moral cowardice when it comes to confronting these things. It's easier for them to perpetuate the status quo. It's easier for them to do what they did less than a week after the Afghan papers came out, which is give tens of billions of dollars right back to the people prosecuting this war, support thousands of U.S. troops in this war, do nothing to address or change policy in any way. It's easy for them to push that on the status quo. Uh, and it's harder for them to do the thing that's right, to stand up, take responsibility, Responsibility, and I think I think we have to be honest that a lot of that blame lies with Congress. On that note, I mean, what what would you say to to members of Congress? Many critics believe lawmakers have largely abdicated their responsibility by failing to repeal the AUMF um, and debate the merits of this and other wars. You just mentioned part of this, but you know, are they also to blame? I think Congress needs to do its job. I think it's that simple. I mean, there are members of Congress right now who were in elementary school when the 2001 AUMF was voted on. There are men and women fighting in Afghanistan right now who were not born when Congress voted on this war. It is unconscionable that they have not done their job. And, you know, I think we need to be clear and we need to call this out for what it is. If members of Congress are too afraid to vote on this war, then they have no business sending other people to fight and die in this war. It is a complete abdication of moral responsibility. It is a complete abdication of power. The good news is they can fix it. It's pretty easy. Nothing's standing in their way. No one can blame Mitch McConnell. No one can blame Donald Trump. All they have to do is begin to do the basic job of oversight. Now, we should be honest, we have a role to play here too. Too many Americans forget have forgotten about this war. Too many Americans have allowed this to go on in perpetuity without demanding that it stop. You know, we know from public opinion polling for years and years and years that this war is unpopular. The American public wants it to end. They want it to be over. It's why you see Donald Trump rushing to try to bring more troops home before the election. People want this war to stop. We need to make our voices heard. We need to make our power felt. And we need to not just wait for Congress to do its job. We need to demand that they do it. Uh, Stephen, can you just remind people what the 2001 AUMF is and the limited scope um, originally of its intent? 
Yeah, so the 2001 AUMF, and AUMF stands for Authorization for the Use of Military Force. It's a very fancy way of saying that Congress is giving the power to go to war. Um, we used to pass declarations of war. We haven't done that since World War II. And so in the in the seven, in the the eight decades since World War II, Congress has passed these war authorizations, these AUMFs. It's important to understand why Congress passes those or why that power rests in Congress, because I think it's often lost in these conversations. And when the framers put together our constitution, they had to answer this question, who's going to decide when our country goes to war? They decided they didn't want the president to have that power. They wanted Congress to have that power. And they did it for two important reasons. One, they knew living in an age of kings and queens that it was dangerous to let one person decide when your country goes to war. Uh, And we see that right now. The entire impeachment is about the nature of a president putting his personal interests above the national interest. The framers wanted to protect against that. So they gave the ultimate power, this massive authority of going to war. They gave that to Congress. And the second reason they did this is because they wanted it to be hard. Congress is big. It's messy. Everyone knows Congress is dysfunctional. But that's the point. If you can't get a majority of 535 people to agree that our country should go to war, we shouldn't send men and women off to fight and die in that war. We shouldn't kill other people in that war. And this gets to the, the bigger part of your question is that Congress voted in the days after the 9-11, the September 11th attacks. They voted to give a war authorization to hold accountable the perpetrators of those attacks. It actually didn't say Afghanistan. It didn't say Al-Qaeda. This was hours after the attacks. People did not know yet who was responsible. But Congress said, we want to give authority to the government to go after militarily those who did this. One brave member of Congress, Barbara Lee from California, stood up and said, this is too broadly written. This is a blank check. We will come to regret this. And unfortunately, her words were prescient. I think we need to be honest that she faced death threats and severe hostility for that vote. But today, as you heard on the Democratic debate stage last night, folks running to be the next president recognized that she was right in that moment. Uh, What we've seen over the intervening 18 years is this authorization that was originally about going to war after the attacks of September 11th has been used for military action everywhere from Southeast Asia to Africa, countless countries in the Middle East is currently being used to justify war in, in, in over a dozen countries against groups, many of which were not even in existence during September 11th. And we've gone so far beyond what those members of Congress thought they were voting on in 2001, that it's, it's long past time to have a reckoning. Right. And I think it's important that listeners know, you know, the Afghan war is still raging. There are over 14,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And from January to October, U.S.-led forces have lobbed more missiles this year than in 2018, which was the most since 2011. Knowing full well that this is an ongoing war with no end in sight, what is the legacy of this conflict, Stephen? Well, you know, I heard I heard a conversation the other day. Uh, there was there was an article about Joe Biden um, and his comments at one point about the concern with the Vietnam uh, syndrome, so-called Vietnam syndrome, where Americans became disillusioned with the use of power after Vietnam and thought we're very reticent to use it afterwards. The lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan should actually be that. There is a deep limitation to what American military force can do. You can have the most powerful military force in the world as we do right now. It cannot do certain things. And when we throw that military at problems that do not have military solutions, we're not going to get peace. We're not going to get a better outcome. All we're going to get is what we have right now in Afghanistan. 
which is human suffering, a massive loss of life, and a massive loss of treasure. I, I, you know, you mentioned the war is going on, and you talked about the, the number of missiles and, and the troops, and I think all those are important. But we have to understand that this year, this past year, has been the deadliest year uh, since the United Nations began keeping statistics for this war for Afghans. And we also need to understand that for Afghans, this war didn't start in 2001. This war goes back to the Soviet invasion in 1979, uh, which the U.S. was deeply involved with through the 80s, which I think folks will be familiar with. So there is more than four, there's nearly four decades of U.S. military involvement in one way or another in Afghanistan. It is a four decade long conflict that we need to understand. We have tried to fight every way. We've tried to fight it with big armies, with small armies, with covert missions, with special forces. Everything, all of it has failed because we are constantly trying to use military solutions to problems that don't have military solutions. So the lesson needs to be when you face that situation, do not do that. Uh, and lastly, uh, Stephen, I think it's also important to talk about this in the wider context of U.S. politics and the seemingly endless supply of funds for both declared and undeclared wars the U.S. is currently waging, uh, many of them that you already identified. As you also noted, about a week after the P Afghan papers were released, Congress passed a $738 billion defense budget uh, for the NDA of 2020, and clearly the report had little impact on their vote. So when you're on the Hill, how will you leverage this reporting to convince lawmakers to change how defense money is appropriated and how to bring an end to this conflict? Yeah, it, it's a great question. I mean, I think we do need to contextualize this in the broader endless wars we're seeing, uh, not just in the Middle East, but around the, around the world. You know, the U.S. military footprint in, in, sub, in Africa is growing massively, for example. We need to take the lessons that the Afghan papers have, have shown us and apply them to U.S. foreign policy. And Congress needs to begin to do that. It needs to have hearings. It needs to examine this. It needs to understand what those lessons are. But a couple of things we know right off the top of the bat are that our military leaders and others supporting the military solutions will continue to tell us that everything is working, even when they know it's not, right? Even when they know it's not working, they will continue to advocate for more of the same. And we need to not take them at their word. But it's interesting you talk about Congress. We also need to understand this, this isn't a situation in which there's like a battle of ideas going on in a vacuum. We have to understand there's large corporations that are making tens of billions of dollars uh, in profits off of this war. They're making it off of the munitions that are sold. They're making it off of servicing contracts. They're making it off in all sorts of ways. And they have a deeply vested interest in this war continuing. In the arms industry has somewhere around a thousand registered lobbyists who make their presence felt in Capitol Hill each and every day. The way we counter that is two things. One, we have truth on our side. And despite living in a bit of a post-truth era, truth is still a powerful commodity. And the second thing is that we have the American public on our side. The American public is not interested in their tax dollars subsidizing these ultra-wealthy corporations who are making a killing off of killing. They want to see their tax dollars spent rebuilding here at home and making the world a more safe and secure and peaceful place. So if we bring their conversations in, and we begin to have more power. The last, th the last thing I'll say about that is the Afghan papers revealed something that's really important to get, which is through this time period when these, when these political leaders and military leaders were saying these, these lies out in the public, but it, behind closed doors were saying the truth. The American public was in the place of not supporting these wars. The, there is so much wisdom in the American public's views on these issues. And we need to do a better job of democratizing our foreign policy. We need to stop listening and empowering a small group of Washington elites who will tell us one thing in public and another thing behind closed doors. 
we need to put that power back in the hands of the American public because there's a lot of wisdom in their in their views. Uh, that's great, Stephen. Let's just hope that uh, these uh, these hearings that he, that you're calling for actually are produced and people, although impeachment is obviously uh, important, the process is important, that we can also discuss uh, these other hugely important issues. So Stephen, thanks again for being on. We really appreciate your insight. Thanks. I'm, gl- I'm glad to be here. If folks want to find out more about Win Without War, they can certainly visit our website, winwithoutwar.org. We'll be tracking the developments of this issue over the coming months. And um, we'll have ways that folks can take action. Like I said, not just hoping for those those hearings, but demanding them. And uh, we, we'd love to have folks involved. That's great. We'll definitely pass that along. Thanks again, Steve. Thanks again, Steve. Thanks. Joining us now is Will Goodwin, a U.S. Army veteran and the Director of Government Relations at Vote Vets, a progressive advocacy group. Uh, Will, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so, Will, I want to sort of get your guttural reaction to this report. Were you surprised by any of it? Absolutely. I mean, we there there are definitely pieces of the report that had been known to the public before. But when you look at these documents in their total, what we have here is for 18 years, the senior most officials in our government, in the military, political officials, diplomats and others have lied to the American people about the war in Afghanistan, uh, a war that they believed was unwinnable. Yet throughout that time, they continued to uh, devote resources to mislead the public and to put American lives at risk. And that war continues to this day. So these revelations in the the tone in the papers is certainly shocking, but what it should do is spur action uh, and finally bring an end to this conflict. Now, Will, as someone who served and now as someone who fights on behalf of your fellow veterans, what is it like to learn uh, this, that officials have been lying to the public? Well, I mean, the American public holds a lot of trust in our military, and that's not without reason. Um, but that's because of the the soldiers and uh, military families that they know, right? The people who have been sent to go fight in Afghanistan, who have been told what to do and are trying to achieve a mission that they have been told was deemed uh, in our national security interest. So what's a real betrayal here is that people who hold such important leadership roles in the U.S. military and who those soldiers and their families look up to and trust have been misleading all of us inside the military community and outside throughout the duration of this conflict. And for our military, one of the things that makes the U.S. military as strong as it is, is trust, trust between the military and the public, but also trust within the chain of command. And so when you have senior officials going out and telling uh, young men and women that this battle in Afghanistan is going to be a decisive point in the war, that the input of, of their efforts, that them risking their lives is going to have a direct effect on the conflict and on America's national security. And they go out and do those missions. All the while, these senior military leaders and folks in Washington, D.C. knew that that wasn't the truth. Uh, So they continued to sacrifice American lives in a war that they believed was unwinnable. And that, to me and to the people that we represent at VoteVets, is unacceptable. Uh, And you bring up a good point, Will, this, this trust factor. You know, what are service members now currently serving, you know, in Afghanistan? It's a war that's still going on. You know, what are they supposed to think about, you know, the, the future of this conflict and, and their role in it? That's a great question. Um, I, I don't know what they're supposed to think. I mean, this is here we are as as folks here in the States are heading home to celebrate the holidays with their families. 
there are families. I mean, we have over 10,000 people. I think it's closest to 13,000 right now actively serving in Afghanistan. And their families aren't going to be with them this holiday. And they also know that they're going to be separated because they are fighting in a war that our leaders don't think is winnable. You know, for us, this is the, the fundamental question here. If we're going to use the U.S. military in a conflict like this, is there a clear national security interest for the United States and the American people? And is it one that can be met through the use of the U.S. military? And from these documents, the answer is no. So what are our people still doing there? So I'm, I'm mad. I'm outraged. I think it's a disgrace that there are military families who are going to have an empty seat around the Christmas dinner table next week while their service members are over here fighting in Afghanistan. And by the way, not receiving any real type of response to these documents from their leaders. I mean, some of the reaction from senior military commanders has been stunning. Former Secretary of Defense Mattis basically said, well, we, we kind of knew this, this war was a mess all along. There's no surprise here. I mean, that type of kind of cavalier attitude towards this. Well, this isn't news because we all knew this was a huge mistake and it's been a poorly executed war all along does not answer the question of why we're still there. If that's really how people feel, currently serving leaders and those who, who have taken off the uniform, then what are we doing there? Uh, I mean, and this is an issue that cuts across parties, right? If, you, if we remember back to 2016, President Trump ran a very clear platform about ending these wars. And this is, I mean, it was true of President Obama as well when he was running for office and drew a, a sharp contrast in the primary to Hillary Clinton over the Iraq war. And then when he got into office, he fell into the same trap that President Trump has fallen into, which is taking the advice of senior military officials to surge and bring additional troops into Afghanistan that has created no lasting effect on the state of our involvement there. Now, Will, during the summer, uh, Pew Research released a poll in which it found about two-thirds of veterans said the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were not worth fighting. And I wonder, were service members privately expressing misgivings or concerns with the progress of the war while they were deployed? I guess, you know, from the perspective of some of your members? I mean, yeah, we've spoken and heard from people who certainly questioned, you know, while they were doing this, what the bigger picture was and whether they were actually achieving some larger end state. And honestly, people who have been back so many times who have deployed seven, eight, nine times and gone back and seen areas where they worked. We, you know, we went in with this approach of gaining control of areas and then holding it for a period of time. Most of those, as soon as American service members left, reverted back to Taliban control and, and some of the same problems that were there before we arrived. So I think people have looked at some of those instances personally and wondered what did their units deployment mean? Uh, but then from a bigger picture, I think as people look at the, at the scope of this war and they look at how many friends they've lost, how many lives have been affected, it's hard to rationalize that, especially when you have a release of documents like the Afghanistan papers. And you know, this isn't just, we, we can talk about the numbers here too, 2,300 US service members killed, over 20,000 wounded. And the, the ramifications that have on veterans' health care and on uh, the families who are dealing with the ramifications of either losing a loved one or having to serve as caretaker for someone who is seriously wounded over there. I mean, the, these 
issues for veterans and for military families and for those still serving are constant. They're constant. And, and even when they aren't directly talking about Afghanistan, you know, when I go out and I talk with our members or meet veterans in you know, a campaign or political setting, they're talking about associated issues, suicide, the, the amount of time that service members are spending away from their kids while they're growing up, and all of these kind of externalities that we can trace back to the demands that we have placed on America's men and women in uniform over the last 18 years of this conflict. And based on the reaction from our national leaders, there is no end in sight. Well, the release of these papers have a striking and eerie similarity to the release of the Pentagon Papers several decades ago. I mean, in that case, we were talking about you know multiple administrations executing this war. Same thing here in Afghanistan. What do you make of these parallels and, and the fact that it seems that we haven't learned from the past? Absolutely. I mean, the parallels are, are all there. <laughs> it's really disconcerting because one of the things that makes our military strong and has allowed us to have so much success militarily, right? Like our, when the U.S. military goes in to accomplish a mission, they get the job done. Uh, and part of that is serious self-reflection afterwards in almost everything that the U.S. military does, whether it's uh, you know a mission or a training deployment or whatever, always stop at the end to ask, what did we do well and what can we improve? I mean, the military is constantly evaluating its people from four-star general down to private in the army on how they're doing physically, mentally, you know, how they're advancing in their career, all these things because we realize the value of evaluation and learning from the past, except for when it comes to our involvement in these major military conflicts, right? That's true of, of the Pentagon. I mean, we have a memorial on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. with 50,000 names etched in black granite. And that Vietnam War Memorial should serve as a reminder to all of us of the consequences of leaders keeping us in armed conflict uh, with no military solution in sight and the real human cost of that. Yet here we are. And, in, and just like with the Pentagon Papers, the military and um, senior people in our government were terrified about the implications of these documents being released. Uh, why? Why? I mean, this is, this is a public trust, right? Our service members swear an oath to the Constitution they are serving the rest of us. They are not serving a political party. They're not serving a military leader. You know, they're serving under the president's leadership, but it is about all of us. You know, and the flip side of that too, as we, we discussed a little bit earlier, is that all of us have a responsibility to speak up on this. Everyone who's listening to the show should take the time to read the Afghanistan papers. You don't have to read every single document. I have not read every single document, but, but go through that. Craig Whitlock's story and read the substance and take that 30 minutes to understand exactly what we're talking about here. That's a way that everyone can actually honor the service of our men and women in uniform is going through understanding what's happening. And if it gives you the same feeling that it gives me, then pick up the phone, call your member of Congress, call your senator and demand that they bring an end to this conflict. Uh, because they have the power to do it. And frankly, they have the numbers to do it. There is cross-partisan support for this. It's just that no one will take the leadership that is needed to actually force people to go on the record and say, what 
you know, what would it take for you to vote to repeal the authorization for the use of military force and bring our men and women home? What would it take? And everybody has a different answer, which is fine, but we need to find the answer that gets us to a majority in the House and a majority of the Senate and pass that thing. Well, what do you say to the people in the government who suppress this information and who blatantly lied to the public about this? And also, what do you say to the elected officials who have largely allowed this war to proceed unchecked for more than 18 years? We talked a little bit about the nature of our of our military, right? Professionalism and some of the values that drive our, our men and women in uniform each and every day. One of those is integrity, right? And and honesty and believing that this really is a public trust. It doesn't matter what your rank is, it doesn't matter what your job is. If you are a special envoy or if you are a three-star general and you go out and you tell the American public one thing and you tell men and women in the field one thing and then behind closed doors, you trash the effort that you're pushing those other people to support, that's a betrayal. And and we, we need to get past this this point where we think that just because military official at a, at a senior level says something that we're going to take it at face value because those people have a responsibility to tell the truth. And it should be the same truth when they are talking to the public and the same truth when they're talking behind closed doors. And that's one of the things that really you know came out in these papers, right, is that people were going and speaking truthfully to the special investigator for reconstruction in Afghanistan, but they weren't telling the truth to the public. Um, and that has real ramifications. To those people who have been in Congress, I mean, this is about how much we really do value the service of our men and women in uniform. And lots of people say the right things. They give lip service to veterans, service members, and their families. But here's an example where a collective bipartisan failure has left us in this conflict for 18 years. There is plenty of blame to go around. But there are too few people who saw this news and turned around and demanded that something be done about it. And that's also on us as the public, right, to stay engaged. And just because as many people disapprove of this war as was the case in Vietnam, we need to match the, the fervor and the anger and people protesting and holding people accountable in a way that is respectful of the men and women of our military, but seeks accountability for those who are leading it. And well, just lastly, um, you mentioned the AUMF. Even though it hasn't been repealed or there hasn't been significant changes, one of the most, I guess, effective strategies was to contrast the sacrifice that service members, you know, they're sacrificing their lives to fight these wars while members of Congress are sitting at home, yet, according to critics, don't have the bravery to actually reconcile with this. So, you know, just what do you say about that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, fundamentally, if America's men and women in uniform are going to have the courage to go fight and risk their lives in a conflict, then the people in Congress whose job it is to vote on when and where we use the U.S. military had better have the courage to demand and take that vote. Um, and I can tell you, as someone who worked uh, in the Senate prior to coming to vote bets, one of the challenges is that people are terrified at the member of Congress level of being on the record on the use of the U.S. military. Uh, and in some ways, that's a positive thing, right? Like people are afraid of making a mistake and committing American lives to a future conflict like the Iraq war. But that doesn't, that doesn't substitute for the need to redefine what we're doing. 
And, and frankly, there is a lot. I think there's a lot of people who are comfortable with the way that this current authorization for the use of military force has been stretched to justify military action in dozens of countries around the world. But that's not the way the system's supposed to work. If the president wants to employ the U.S. military and it is not in reaction to an imminent threat or an attack on, on the U.S., then he or she needs to go to Congress and ask for an authorization uh, to take America's men and women in uniform into war. Just this year, it, we saw rising tensions with Iran throughout the year, uh, and vote vets helped lead a bipartisan effort that had the support of 27 House Republicans to pass an amendment that basically said if the president wants to go to war with Iran, it is in no way covered under the existing AUMF, and he would need to seek a new authorization from Congress. Passed the House and was blocked by Senate Republican leadership, and the president said that he would have vetoed the entire defense bill if that had gone into effect. But what does that say? I mean, clearly, if you know the policy there, and if you know the regional history and you, you understand Iran and Afghanistan, there is no way that you could twist that authorization to justify military action in Iran. Um, it should have been a no-brainer to pass that into law, and yet we fell short. And that should be that should be a wake-up call to people. I mean, if our men and women are going to go sacrifice and their families are going to be without them for these extended periods of time, then we should know where every member of Congress, House and Senate, stands on these conflicts. And if they believe that these are worth the sacrifices, then vote for it. And if you don't, don't. Uh, that's great, Will. And uh, I hope people take your advice and, and read the report and listen to the recordings. And we'll do our best to get the information out. Thanks again for being on the show and thanks for all you do to support you know, the people who have served. Yeah, thanks for your service. I Absolutely. swore to the flag, my brothers in arms, that I would keep this land far from harm. Not to die on a single man's whim, whatever country was mean to him. This war's not won, cause this war's never done. War's not won since 2001. Afghanistan, Libya, Pakistan, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Iraq. Parent and child made to fight the same fight, and we don't know when they're coming back. Afghanistan, Libya. Pakistan, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Iraq A parent and child made to fight the same fight And we don't know when they're coming